I really saw it as a potential test to see if such a partnership could work. I think I had mixed objectives at that time, partly because I was part of the effort to municipalize our utilities here in Minneapolis. We have an electric company and a natural gas company that work here, and I was interested in seeing if we could get more democratic control over theirs by municipalizing and having our own system. So the partnership was kind of a fallback or a compromise when it looked like that was going to be such a big reach and maybe not possible. Welcome to the fourth episode in a special series of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance's Local Energy Rules podcast focused on public power. Utility companies owned by the cities they serve consumer-owned utilities. The people want solar. Well, this is a totally different model. Run a more efficient operation. The local input. Democratic governance. To demand something better. 100% renewable energy. Publicly accountable resource. This series, called The Promise and Peril of Publicly Owned Power, responds to an upswell of interest in city-owned utilities. In addition to clean energy, advocates cite local control, lowering costs, and reinvestment in the local economy among the major reasons they want public instead of private power companies. In the first three episodes, we shared why communities are pursuing public power, what specific benefits are found in the public power model, and the key ingredients to succeed. In this episode, we talk about the silver linings. In other words, what happens when community efforts to municipalize fail. I'm John Farrell, Director of the Energy Democracy Initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and this is Episode 3 in our multi-part series, The Promise and Peril of Public-Owned Power. It's a production of Local Energy Rules, a bi-weekly podcast sharing powerful stories about local, renewable energy. When cities set out to replace their private utility with a public one, they are motivated by a range of goals, as the guests in our first episode discussed. The list includes clean energy, affordability, equity, resilience, and more local decision-making. So what happens when a takeover campaign falls short? Fortunately, results from many communities suggest that the effort is far from failed. We start with Boulder, Colorado, the inspiration behind many more recent municipal takeover campaigns. Boulder advocates campaigned from 2009 to 2022 in their effort to take over the utility. While the community ultimately agreed to sign a franchise agreement with the incumbent electric utility Excel Energy, the entire conversation had changed significantly thanks to broad community buy-in. Here's Stephen Fenberg, former director of New Era Colorado. In politics, you can either run a campaign with money or you can run it with people. And, And although we have more resources this time around than we did last time, at the end of the day, the core of our campaign was people, and it was volunteers that came out of the woodwork and been with our organization for a while, people we've never met, and they saw our video on the crowdfunding effort and walked in our doors and wanted to see what they could do to help. We had hundreds and hundreds of volunteers that were just there for the right reason. They were there because they're passionate about clean energy, they're passionate about local control, they're passionate about making sure a corporation wasn't buying our elections in our local community. The community's campaign, alongside its new franchise agreement, secured four things despite coming up short in the municipalization effort. One, the utility agreed to provide 100% renewable electricity by 2030. Number two, the agreement includes continued opportunity for local input. 
Number three, the city's new franchise agreement with Excel Energy has key accountability measures, including permission for the city to leave the franchise if the utility fails to meet emissions reductions targets starting next year and for any reason at all beginning in 2026. Finally, between Boulder and Minneapolis, another city that attempted municipalization in Excel Energy territory, the campaigns motivated the utility to be the first investor-owned utility in the country to pledge to provide carbon-free electricity by 2050. The rewards of the public power campaign aren't limited to what's in the city utility agreement. Along the way, Boulder and its citizens also adopted a number of nationally leading policies in support of clean energy, including smart regs, regulations that require buildings to become more energy efficient, a bulk discount program for buying electric vehicles and electric bikes, and a first-in-the-nation local climate tax, providing local revenue for clean energy programs and the city's public power campaign. Boulder advocates like Fenberg weren't just out for their own benefit, they also wanted to set an example for other cities. In a lot of ways, people feel like their, their hands are tied on a local level. And so people were excited and it gave them hope that there actually are things you can do on a local level that can have a big impact, not only for your community, but could set an example for the community as well. Communities should have leverage to be able to get what they're asking for. At the end of the day, they're the customer. And if they're being provided a product that's not in line with their values, they should be able to have the leverage to demand something better. And if the energy company doesn't provide it, then they should be able to have the leverage to municipalize. Boulder may have, quote, failed, unquote, in its quest to have a public electric utility, but it accomplished a great deal along the way. And its settlement agreement with Excel specifically allows the city to exit the franchise if the utility fails to hold up its end of the bargain. The city still has its leverage over its energy future. Minneapolis was one of the cities inspired by Boulder to consider a municipal utility with activists in this Minnesota city inviting then-Boulder Mayor Susan Osborne to come speak about the Colorado City's campaign. In a 2013 article, I listed out seven achievements in the city's relatively young effort to consider public power. Number one, a set of principles and desired outcomes for the city's franchise negotiations, created by the city's Citizens' Environmental Advisory Committee and reflecting a desire to make progress on clean, affordable, reliable, and local energy. Number two, a city-funded energy pathway studies that would eventually explain how the city could reach its desired outcomes, up to and including by forming a municipal utility. Number three, a legislative agenda that was focused on expanding the city's flexibility in its franchise negotiations and removing perverse barriers to forming a locally owned utility in state law. Number four, a remarkable number of mayoral and city council candidate endorsements for considering public power as well as a persistent focus on clean energy in the city's 2013 municipal elections. Number five, a historic memorandum of understanding with the city's gas utility, committing it to partner with the city on achieving greenhouse gas emissions reductions of 30% by 2025. Number six, a letter from Excel Energy, the incumbent electric utility, promising to work toward the city's energy goals. And number seven, a unanimously adopted, quote, framework for reaching city of Minneapolis energy goals that articulated the need for progress, the steps ahead, and the City Council's commitment to using the franchise negotiations to move toward a better energy future. When Minneapolis City Council leaders proposed putting a municipal utility on the ballot in 2013, the utilities instead came to the negotiating table. Instead of a public utility, a unique City Utility Clean Energy Partnership was formed between the City of Minneapolis and its electric and gas utilities, Excel Energy and Centerpoint Energy. I spoke with City Council Member Cam Gordon in 2019 
about the fruits of the municipalization campaign and the results, so far, of the Clean Energy Partnership. I think we've got more public interest in how the utilities work with government, interest from the utilities and also from city government itself. Prior to the partnership, I think there was very little interaction between city government and even the community at large and the utility companies, particularly around um, clean energy and what we would do. I think most people saw their opportunity to influence those things occurring at the legislature because there was more state control and regulations. And I think the utilities saw the city as something to work with when they needed access to the right-of-way, when they were hooking up wires, and when there was a power outage, those kinds of things. And so this really helped, I think, get communication going. We actually meet now and talk. It's helped us leverage different policy changes, I think, on the city level where we've been motivated just because we want to be a good partner. So we've taken action to build up our efforts to move towards cleaner energy and more energy efficiency. We actually created a community advisory group that looks at it and specifically looks at our energy vision and our climate action plan and how to implement those. So from the perspective of somebody who worked hard on that energy vision and the climate action plan, I see a lot more infrastructure came to help support that work at the city level. And I also think that we have the utility companies at the table. We actually have a staff level meeting that happens at least quarterly where there's policy staff from the two utility companies in the city who meet and discuss the issues and haggle over things. And then we have our our Clean Energy Partnership board members where there's representatives from the three entities that get together quarterly and also look at issues and discuss things. And I think that's those are all positive things. We've also made some investments in community solar, our, our own community solar in terms of community solar gardens and being a major stakeholder or customer of those. We're talking about also helping support more gardens that will make it possible for low-income folks. We're talking about what we can do with our infrastructure in terms of making charging stations more available in our parking ramps or maybe even in our right-of-way for electrification of more vehicles. So I think we've actually got a pretty successful green cost share program where we'll go out to businesses and we'll try to give them some help in terms of financing if they're going to do insulation or move towards kind of greener technology when some of that isn't necessarily about climate. It might be about air quality and those things, but some of it is about energy efficiency. But maybe the benchmarking and disclosure things are some of the potentially bigger things that we're doing. We are looking at possibilities of making it easier for people to do some kind of district energy. We have an interesting project. Um, we call it the tower side area of the city where we're looking at a large district-wide geothermal project. There's this study on the clean energy workforce, kind of looking at how it can be more inclusive for people of color and for low-income folks. There's the city's investment in a feasibility study for inclusive energy financing. There's the city's new energy disclosure policy for making sure that when people buy a home or rent a property, they're learning about the energy costs associated with that. There's a benchmarking program for multifamily properties. And there's, of course, there's this big thing, which is the franchise fee increase of a half percent, which has created this two and a half million a year fund 
to invest in local climate solutions. It's noteworthy that in this list of accomplishments that CAM provided that were related to the city's clean energy and climate goals, the underlying motivation for its proposed public takeover, most of the things in that list were things that the city actually did on its own. Recognizing that many of these early benefits were city-driven, CAM went on to express skepticism that the partnership was accomplishing as much as a city takeover would have. I really saw it as a potential test to see if such a partnership could work. I think I had mixed objectives at that time, partly because I was part of the effort to municipalize our utilities here in Minneapolis. We have an electric company and a natural gas company that work here, and I was interested in seeing if we could get more democratic control over theirs by municipalizing and having our own system. So the partnership was kind of a fallback or a compromise when it looked like that was going to be such a big reach and maybe not possible. There's been a lot of things that have been very frustrating about the partnership. It really hasn't given us much more control over our energy future, direct control. Sometimes it feels like the city is still mostly doing all the work and the lifting, and we don't have that much influence. There are certainly examples where we think maybe we're making some progress, but one of the utilities will simply go and work at the state legislature and do things directly opposite of what we think are our goals in terms of our energy here. Typically, what we see is more interest in having the city cooperate with utilities in implementing the programs they're already required to do. And we hear this pushback from the utilities about how we can't really do more because everybody's in our rate base and we have to you know, implement these programs across the board. We've had resistance even to go to the Public Utilities Commission to ask for opportunities or pilot programs or some special things we could do in Minneapolis as demonstration projects that could work well. And that, that resistance has come from the utility companies more than anything else. And so it hasn't necessarily gotten us there faster. And I've had certainly had my moments where I've wondered, is it even worth all the energy that we're putting here, or is that keeping us from maybe doing more in other areas? Fortunately, like Boulder, Minneapolis signed a renewed franchise agreement with the utility that includes a number of mechanisms to withdraw earlier than the prior agreement's 20-year term. One thing about the franchise, we also said if we decide we want to revisit it, we have to give a year's notice so that people have a chance to understand and maybe begin negotiating. And so right now at this point, I think we should talk about changes that we need to make to keep going, and we should be doing a serious evaluation of it. Probably each of the individual entities should be doing their own evaluation of it and seeing if they think that it's worth it to them. And I hope that the city will be engaged in that and even the broader community in the months ahead. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we look at the results of a municipalization campaign in Decorah, Iowa, and the silver linings from that community's narrow miss. You're listening to Episode 4 of The Promise and Peril of Publicly Owned Power, a special series of local energy rules from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Hey, thanks for listening to Local Energy Rules. If you've made it this far, you're obviously a fan, and we could use your help for just two minutes. As you've probably noticed, we don't have any corporate sponsors or ads for any of our podcasts. The reason is that our mission at ILSR is to reinvigorate democracy by decentralizing economic power. Instead, we rely on you, our listeners. Your donations not only underwrite this podcast, 
but also help us produce all of the research and resources that we make available on our website and all of the technical assistance we provide to grassroots organizations. Every year, ILSR's small staff helps hundreds of communities challenge monopoly power directly and rebuild their local economies. So please take a minute and go to ILSR.org and click on the Donate button. And if making a donation isn't something you can do, please consider helping us in other ways. You can help other folks find this podcast by telling them about it or by giving it a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The more ratings from listeners like you, the more folks can find this podcast and ILSR's other podcasts, Community Broadband Bits, and Building Local Power. Thanks again for listening. Now, back to the program. Another electric utility municipalization campaign took place just a few hours' drive south of Minneapolis, in Decorah, Iowa. While the effort fell just three votes short at the ballot box in 2018, it was not a total loss. Within 12 months of the vote, the incumbent utility Alliant Energy submitted a request to state regulators to increase rates by 25% after promising during the public power campaign to raise rates less than 1% per year for a generation. Thanks to their organizing effort around public power, Decorah advocates like Andy Johnson were prepared. So that got a lot of people really mad really fast. And that actually resulted in a pretty significant coalition of Decorah entities, including the city and the energy district, the medical center, the largest senior nursing home and nonprofit care center, um, banded together. And there were a couple other entities as well to form what's called a coalition that called themselves the Decorah Power Group and intervened in the Alliant Energy Rate case at the Iowa Utilities Board and said, board, we were just fooled and lied to and misled and bullied by this investor-owned utility who told our community in order to maintain their franchise here that they would not be raising rates significantly for a generation. And now they're coming and they're wanting to raise our rates 25%. And so long story short, like all rate cases, it goes on through and they get an approval of an increase that's something less than what they asked for. That exercise, though, was really, really powerful, I think. The, the Decor area group and partner interveners actually had a very significant impact on that rate case in many ways. But that also involved organizing communities around eastern Iowa who saw what was happening. And there were over 60 communities that actually submitted formal comments in that case. It never happened before here in Iowa. And in the ruling, the board actually severely chastised Alliant Energy, Interstate Power and Light in language, saying that they had misrepresented and there was a serious lack of transparency in the Decorah case. So they kind of took on the Decorah case as part of a state rate case, which is also really unique, and said, that was wrong. You shouldn't do that again. We're going to watch you. And they actually mandated the creation of a stakeholder process coming out of that that they hadn't had in place before. So it didn't give the community its service territory or redo the referendum, but it was very significant, including for the community in terms of bringing the entities together and getting a ruling from the state regulator that said, yes, you're right. You were, you were misled. You were not treated fairly here. And hopefully that won't happen again. So then looking forward, the community, the council can say, well, okay, maybe things will be different next time. Maybe not. But if there is a next time, let's think about that. City officials in Decorah had another run at public power on their minds as they set out to negotiate a new franchise agreement, the local contract between the city and the utility that establishes the working relationship. Because a city can't legally pursue a takeover if it has a current franchise contract, Decorah, like Boulder and Minneapolis, wanted a shorter agreement. 
Decoro was very clear on saying, okay, if we're going to renegotiate a franchise, we need outs. We're not going to be obligated for another 25 years without a chance to do this again. And of course, Alliant didn't like that. Alliant and MidAmerican are the two largest electric investor owns in Iowa, and they're always really working hard for long, long-term franchise agreements because that long-term franchise agreement then locks the community in, does away with their choice. So Decora went two years negotiating and just refused to sign a franchise. Eventually, the utility started making really big threats to make really big charges to the community for infrastructure movements during road projects, for example. Well, a city's going to do a big road project. The utility has to move poles and wires. You know what? You're not under a franchise, so we don't have to cover those costs. We're going to start billing you, in this case, a million bucks. For a small town, that's a lot of money. So those threats created some more back and forth. The city submitted a complaint to the utilities board, said this isn't right. The upshot of that was a franchise agreement was signed with five, seven, and 12-year outs. So at those time periods from the beginning of the signing, the city has a right to just cancel the franchise agreement. The city also took other steps to ensure it would have sufficient information and community engagement to overcome utility opposition should it try to pursue public power a second time. At the end of 2020, I believe it was, the city created a formal sustainability commission as part of city government. They'd had advisory sustainability groups and a sustainability plan in, in the past years that we had worked with them on from the energy district side and others, but they created an actual city sustainability commission. The commission created a plan and one of the top elements was asking the city to create a new task force to study the issue of municipalization again. So that's a process in early 2021, I believe it was, the city went ahead and created that task force and charged the task force essentially with a couple of big ticket items. One was a community engagement process, do a lot of listening, do a lot of learning, do some educating, do hold some presentations, try and reach out to stakeholders and community portions of the community everywhere to both learn what people's concerns are and to continue the education process of what, if we tried the municipalization effort again, what that process really entails and make sure people's questions are answered. And then together with the community engagement, task the task force with either conducting a new or updating the feasibility study from 2017 and 18 for the present. Andy also noted that, like Boulder, the municipalization campaign in Decora inspired people from other communities to learn more about taking charge of their energy future. We've certainly had a number of inquiries from folks and communities around Iowa, as well as outside of Iowa, around the country, actually. We've had quite a number of conversations. I think there's a growing interest for sure in folks, again, taking ownership of that energy future. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Local Energy Rules, the fourth in our multi-part series, The Promise and Peril of Publicly Owned Power. If you liked this episode, don't miss the earlier parts of this series. Episode one covers the inspiration behind public power campaigns. Episode two discusses the benefits of public power. And episode three explores the ingredients of successful public power campaigns. We also have many resources for advancing equitable clean energy at the local level on the website of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, including the Interactive Community Power Toolkit, a list of municipal utilities on our community power map, and numerous other interviews and articles about the community efforts to achieve thriving, equitable economies through clean energy. Our next episode in the Public Power series in two weeks takes a candid look at existing public power. 
The flip side of our second episode, where we discuss the benefits of public power, we talk with folks from California, Nebraska, and Tennessee, where their community's electricity comes from a government-owned entity, but the policies and practices don't always fulfill the expectations of public ownership. Local Energy Rules is produced by me and Maria McCoy, with editing and sound production by audio engineer Drew Birschbach. Tune back into Local Energy Rules every two weeks to hear more powerful stories of communities taking on concentrated power to transform the energy system. Until next time, keep your energy local, and thanks for listening.